Ezekiel had a mind-blowing vision in his book, chapters 8 through 11. And one of the things he saw was women in the temple of God, and they were weeping for Tammuz. Now, this is the only place in the Bible that Tammuz is even mentioned. So what's that all about? Well, you'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and kind of a Star Trek fan. I don't think a Star Trek fan would consider me a Star Trek fan because I've only seen the three movies that came out over the past few years. But, um, the new movies, I did like them. And and you could say that I'm a fan, even though I haven't even seen the old stuff, but I did think the new stuff was pretty good. One of my favorite characters in the new ones, it's this guy named Scotty, and he's played by Simon Pegg. And it's his job to keep the spaceship orderly, to keep the engines running, to keep everything in good shape. And there's this scene in the second film, it's where he gets into an argument with the captain uh, named Captain Kirk. And he tells Kirk that he's going to quit because there's just too many rules that are being broken. They're not being followed. And, and he says, this is the last straw. Scotty, I need you to approve those weapons. Do you know what this is, Captain? I don't have time for a lecture, Scotty. Do you know what this is? It's a warp core. It's a radioactive catastrophe waiting to happen. Letting those torpedoes on board the Enterprise is the last straw. What was the first straw? What was the, there are plenty of straws. Well, I thought of that scene as I studied Ezekiel chapter 8, and that's where we're going to be back today. God is telling Ezekiel that this is the last straw. And, and just like in the movie, there have been plenty of straws. Israel's sins have included skipping out on Jubilee years, neglecting the poor, pride, high places, and a whole lot more. And, and idolatry has been a problem in the land for years. But the last straw is when the Israelites brought their idolatry right into the temple itself, right into God's own house. For God... This was the last straw, and now they're in for it. Now Jerusalem itself is going to be destroyed. So in episode 27, we started into Ezekiel 8, and God picked Ezekiel up in Tel Aviv and spiritually transported him to Jerusalem, and they entered the temple itself. Now this was a vision, but God was showing Ezekiel the things that were really happening over there. While Ezekiel and some of the other Jewish captives, while they're sitting around hundreds of miles away, Wondering if Jerusalem is ever going to come rescue them, God takes Ezekiel over to Jerusalem supernaturally, and he shows him everything that's going on back there. And it's not good. Idolatry is going on in the temple itself. Like, right from the moment you walk in the doors, people are worshiping false gods. They're doing it down in the basement. Every time God shows Ezekiel one of these things, God says, and not only this, it's going to get worse. In fact, that's where we left off last time. We left off in verse 13. God says, I'll show you even greater abominations than these. And that's what we're going to talk about this time. So turn back to Ezekiel 8 and let's find out how it could get any worse. Now, as we get into this, I just got to say, um, this is going to be one of those lessons. I think it's going to be my longest lesson yet, you know, to be quite honest. We have a lot of information I want to cover today. So listen, I'm just going to say up front, 
Um, th- this is going to be a, a content-packed episode this week. And uh, if you start to get overwhelmed with all this information, you know, if it starts to just get to be like TM- TMI or whatever, here's what you do. You just pause it and you finish it later, okay? Don't feel like you gotta cram all this into one day because I don't wanna like overload you with information. So if you start to feel overloaded, honestly, just just pause the podcast, come back to it later, um, cause the, and or listen to it again. You know, sometimes I have to listen to an audio two or three times to pick up everything that was in it, and, and that's always okay too. But we're gonna we're gonna go through a lot today. So I'm just warning you up front, power-packed episode here. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. Ezekiel chapter eight, verses 14 and 15. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see, you will see still greater abominations than these. So Ezekiel comes across women and they're doing something here that's not directly referenced anywhere else in the Bible. It says they are weeping for Tammuz. Now, it's clear from the context that this is something idolatrous, everything in the chapter is, but this is something very, very bad. And and what exactly is it? Well, this word is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So to figure out exactly what it is, what we're actually going to have to do is is dip our toes into some ancient Middle Eastern religious beliefs. We're going to look at some historical, uh, the historical record to find out what this thing was all about. So the cult of Tammuz, this goes all the way back to Tower of Babel times. If you recall, there was a man in Genesis 10 named Nimrod. And that name might be a little familiar to you. It stands out in the genealogy that's found in that chapter. And of course, with the genealogy, it's really easy to lose track of names because you you read through them. uh, And and, and chapter 10 of Genesis is one of those genealogies. You read through this whole list of like 70 names. You know, it's hard to remember any of them specifically, but... Nimrod actually does get a little bit of a spotlight. You know, as you're reading through all the names, uh, he gets a spotlight kind of in verse 10 of that chapter. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read like a section of verses. It's going to include a lot of names. But notice how it focuses on Nimrod and the things about Nimrod. So it starts at Genesis 10. We'll start at verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Reason between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. So as we read that, that was like six verses right there from the genealogy. But notice how Nimrod was singled out whenever it got through that list of names and it was mentioning some of the cities they built, the kingdoms that they started. And Nimrod started one that was very familiar to us, Babel, which was in the land of Shinar. And that's the exact place of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And we all know what happened there. Um, What you might not know, Shinar is the land of Babylon that came along later. So the capital city of Babylon, maybe you put this together by now, it's the same as the Babel of ancient times. Babel is Babylon. And that land became the nation of Babylon by the time of Ezekiel. So today, you know, we would look at it today and we'd say it's the land of Iraq. Uh, we know it by another name. But as far as countries go, uh, Iraq is one of those countries that generates a lot of interest. Okay, it creates a lot of headlines. The ancient city of Babylon 
you can actually still visit it today. Um, it's been excavated over the past few decades, uh, it, but it was started by Nimrod thousands of years ago after the flood. And, and that set up the incident that later became known as the Tower of Babel. So Nimrod isn't mentioned. I don't think he's mentioned anymore throughout the Bible, but the, the ancient Middle Eastern people, they created a whole mythology around Nimrod. Now, how much of this was influenced by demons and how much was generated by human imagination? I'm not going to make any claims about that. I have no idea. But I do want to tell you some of the basics of the Nimrod cult. And I'm not claiming today that any of this is even true whatsoever. These are just the legends that sprang up after Nimrod died. And the Bible only mentions Nimrod here, and it does give some special attention to him. He was a significant figure in in those days, but this is the only place in the Bible about Nimrod. But I would say anybody in the ancient Middle East, everybody knew about Nimrod for, you know, for thousands of years after. Everybody knew Nimrod. They had stories about Nimrod. So what does the Bible tell us? Well, the Bible said he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, what it was that he hunted, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I've heard that I've heard it said that he hunted the dinosaurs, and that's why there's no more dinosaurs today. Now, that sounds like a good idea for a, a movie or something, but that's a little bit too fantastical for me. But Nimrod, he's also said to have wanted to unite the world under one religion and one government. And I do believe that there's there's probably some truth to that, because um, after all, that's what the whole Tower of Babel thing was all about. And Nimrod wanted all the people to worship him, and he wanted Babel to be his capital. So he's kind of like a precursor to the Antichrist. Um, there's a lot of figures in the Old Testament, and they represent typographically the Antichrist. People like Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus Epiphanes, and I would say Nimrod is one of those people too. And by the way, the New Testament says that the Antichrist will also use Babylon as his capital city. So Babylon's job is not done yet. The city that Nimrod started thousands of years ago, um, it's, it's got future plans too. So anyway, Nimrod started Babel, and he was said to be worshipped as a god. Um, he, he married a woman named Semiramis. And he was probably at this time the most powerful and famous man on earth, you know, for a short time. Not that there were nearly as many people back then as there are today. So that wasn't as big of a feat, I guess you could say. But he was like the most famous celebrity on earth at that time. And um, eventually it is said that he was gored to death by a wild animal. Um, so anyway, that happened. Uh, sometime later, Semiramis discovered that she was pregnant. And apparently this was like too long after Nimrod's death that it couldn't have been Nimrod himself. Now, I don't know who Semiramis, you know, how much of this is even true, if it is who she actually got with, or, you know, even if she even existed. A lot of this stuff, like I said, it's based on the legends, the stories they had in the Middle East back then. I would say she probably existed, but but this story here is definitely not true. So Semiramis said that she was supernaturally impregnated by Nimrod and that he had used the rays of the sun to impregnate her. She said that Nimrod shone the sun on her and got her pregnant supernaturally through the rays of the sun. People believed it. Later on, a baby was born. It was a boy. She named him Tammuz, and he was worshipped as the sun god. So Tammuz was the product of what we might call an immaculate conception, according to the legend, okay? Tammuz became known as the sun god, and Semiramis was given the name the Queen of Heaven. And this was a really prevalent religion in the ancient Middle East. A lot of cultures, they all had their own version 
of this story. And the details would change a little bit between the stories, kind of like how, you know, every ancient culture has their own flood story. And there's a lot of similarities between them and also a few differences. The names aren't always the same, but it's interesting that everybody had some version of it. And it was like that with Semiramis and Tammuz also. They were known by many different names in different places, but it was everywhere in some form. And, and even here in the, the t- by the time of Ezekiel, it's creeping into God's own temple here. Tammuz, worship of Tammuz, weeping for Tammuz. Um, his other names, sometimes that you'll see in other cultures, it's Dumuzi to the Sumerians. He was Adonis to the Greeks. And it's the same name, um, or sorry, different name, but it's the same basic story, you know, in all these different places. So as part of the mythology of Tammuz, it was said that Tammuz died in the winter and was reincarnated in the spring. And so in between his death and his reincarnation, people would lament or weep for Tammuz. And this was a pagan ritual. And this became the basis of a mother-child cult. You know, if you look at any other mother-child cult in history, it's rooted in this legend of Tammuz and Semiramis, who, as I said before, she was worshipped as the queen of heaven. In fact, if you turn to Jeremiah 44, I want to show you something there. In Jeremiah, you know, around this section of the book, the people were coming to Jeremiah and they were asking for a message from God. And Jeremiah tells them, well, I can give you a message from God, but if you hear it, you have to listen to it. You know, even if you don't like it, you still have to listen. You still have to obey. And the people are like, oh, of course we'll listen to it. Of course we'll obey. It's God. Of course we'll listen to God. So Jeremiah gives them the message and they don't like it. (laughs) So they don't want to listen to it. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 44, verses 16 and 17. Here's how the people responded. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. As we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, So they tell Jeremiah, you know what, Jeremiah, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to go back to worshiping the queen of heaven. We think that she's going to take better care of us. And the queen of heaven is Semiramis and other names that she was known by in history. Astarte, Asherah, Ishtar. And and I don't know what name they called her, whether they called her Semiramis during this time in Jeremiah or, or something else. But her title is the queen of heaven. So, um, have you noticed any parallels though? as we talk about Semiramis and Tammuz with also Mary and Jesus. And if you do, don't feel bad about that. Um, There are some parallels there. Mary was supernaturally impregnated by God in the New Testament. And Jesus is not the sun God, but he is the son of God. And there's many metaphors made with Jesus and also the sun in the New Testament. So there's some similarities there. So some people wonder, are God, Mary, and Jesus, are they just a Christian expression of the Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz thing. Now, obviously, I don't believe they are, um, because I believe God and Mary and Jesus, I believe they're all real. But I also believe that what Satan likes to do is create counterfeits. And he even, when he knows what's coming in the future, he will sow the seeds for counterfeits even long in advance. So you see some similarities there. Um, And even if you do, it's okay. Don't feel bad about it. I don't, don't doubt the Christian story because of them. This is just how Satan tries to create counterfeits to deceive people. And we're going to get into that more at the end later on. But I have a lot more to say about this Tammuz thing. So let's finish out chapter 8. I think these last three verses, they're going to make even more sense now 
that now that you know the whole context about Tammuz. So back to Ezekiel 8, and we're going to start at verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men, with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence, and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose, therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Now, some of the most important elements here are that this idol worship, it's infiltrated into the inner court of the Lord. So even deeper into the temple now. And as you study the temple, you see that it has various layers right up till you get to the Holy of Holies. Um, you can't just go into the Holy of Holies whenever you wanted. It was highly, highly restrictive. So um, we don't see the idolatry going quite into there because people weren't allowed into there, but we see this idolatry going right up as far as they can with it. They're into the inner court. And in the inner court, it said Ezekiel sees 25 men. That's the second element uh, that I want to address here. Why 25 men? And I'm not exactly sure why. Um, there is one thing we could point out, that there were 24 priestly orders as well as one high priest. So perhaps it was like representative of each of the priestly orders plus the high priest. And they were all engaged in bringing pagan worship into the house of God. Um, that could be it. That would match well with what we saw in the previous part of the chapter where it said 70 men were worshiping false gods in a secret room. And the 70 men probably correspond to the 70 elders who helped manage Israel as a nation. So I think what it's saying here, altogether, the entire government of Israel and the entire religious leadership of Israel, they are all worshiping false gods right here in God's own temple. Um, and if that's not what it's saying, I'm, I'm not actually sure what the number 25 is, is all about then. But um, that's I think that's a pretty good theory of what it means. And then the third element I want to note is their position. It says that they have their backs to the temple. And that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, they've turned their backs on God. Fourth, it says they are facing the east, where the sun rises, and they are worshiping the sun. And that's classic Tammuz worship, as he was, he was the sun god, as you've picked up on that detail by now, I'm sure. And then five, it says God puts a branch to the nose. And it's a bit obscure. Um, the idea here seems to be that they've thumbed their nose at God, or maybe that they're making themselves a stench before God. They're they're shoving this idolatry in God's face right up right up his nose. You know, I'm not exactly sure. It's an idiom that is kind of lost to time. Although I think the meaning here is pretty obvious. It's that they're dissing God right in his own house. Um, it, it reminded me of a time that I I was giving somebody a ride, and um, and I don't recommend doing that. You know, generally. But I was young. I had just gotten my license. I saw this guy on the side of the road. He was stranded. He was disabled, um, and I was just trying to help someone out. So he didn't. He didn't. Look, he didn't look very threatening. So I stopped to help him. Again, I don't recommend doing that. I was young and dumb back then. But, <laughs> but anyway, there was this bizarre thing that happened. As I gave him, it was just a few miles away where he was trying to get to, and just a bizarre thing happened on my way to to take him where he wanted to go. Um, he started complaining about my driving, and and I'm just kind of thinking, you know. You can get out <laughs> if you don't like it. <laughs> I mean, I was a new driver. I don't know. Maybe I was a bad driver. I don't really remember. But it's not like he was giving me pointers to be a better driver. It was like it was like he just had a bad attitude. 
you know, here I am helping him out, and he's complaining about my driving, and and it, I wasn't I wasn't like jerking the car around like crazy. I wasn't driving like a maniac or something, but I just remember thinking, "Good grief, this is like the rudest person <laughs> that I've ever met," because I'm I'm giving him a ride to be nice to him and help him out, and he just immediately starts criticizing me, and um, this guy was just really rude. So I don't think I've ever even picked up a stranger since then, because I just always think back to how much that that first guy that I picked up how he hurt my feelings. And um, it just takes a special kind of rudeness and, and audacity, I would say, to insult someone who's trying to help you out. And so I was thinking about this guy, that guy's rudeness as I was reading this, okay? I was thinking about how rude that guy was, and I just, just take that audacity, okay? That pig-headedness, and just take that times a thousand, and at times a million, okay? That's how terrible it is to be here within the true God's own house, worshiping false gods. You're here worshiping false gods within the true God's temple. Um, it, it just, it's like, how do you get more audacious? And I don't know if even rude, rude feels like too small of a word, but you know, he doesn't say what he said all those other times here where God would always say it's going to get worse. He doesn't say that this time. It doesn't get any worse than this. This is the worst. This is the last straw. Well, we're going to get into some applications in just a few minutes for this chapter. And and most of today's lesson is really focused on the application. This is a very applicable chapter. Uh, but first, before we do that, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Uh, if not, then you definitely don't want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through kind of a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories um, I think the most recent episode, it was kind of a retrospective. We just talked about uh, we we talked about some some current events, but also talked about how did we get here at this point in history. So, um, if you like hearing about current events and looking at them through a, a I, I would say still a Christian point of view, it's not explicitly a Christian show, but I mean I'm a pastor, so I can't separate that from <laughs> from everything I do. So if you like laughing at fake news. Um, go go give it a listen. You can join the fun with new episodes of that one, typically on Fridays. And then if you have a question on this chapter, uh, what we've been talking about today or anything we've covered so far, leave a comment, shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you'd like to see me tackle in the future. Next time on this podcast, we're going to be on to the third horseman of the apocalypse. And if you've been listening to those, um, you know, we've covered the first of the two horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what they're popularly called. It comes from Revelation chapter six. We'll be back there again next time on the podcast. And then two episodes from now, we'll finally be starting into Ezekiel nine. And and now at this point, we've covered uh, eight chapters of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is 48 chapters in total. So we've covered one sixth of the book at this point now. And I know that's moving pretty slow, um, considering that we started this podcast back in 2021 in October. Uh, but honestly, to me, it doesn't feel slow. I understand if it feels slow to you. Uh, I understand if you feel like I'm dragging it out. But here's how I look at it. If we if we were in one of the Gospels, it would feel like like a lot if we covered a whole chapter or even half a chapter at a time. 
Um, no, nobody would think I was crazy to just comment on every sentence or dig, dig whatever I could out of them. But a lot of times we get into these Old Testament books and we have a tendency to just kind of like fly through them without ever stopping to smell the roses. And, and to me, the whole Bible is the word of God. So every single book is worth taking our time to work through. And, and that's what I'm trying to do here. And I'm having a pretty good time so far. So I hope you're back with me in Ezekiel in a couple weeks as we start into the ninth chapter. And that should be episode 31. Now let's talk some more about this Tammuz cult that we discussed earlier. Even though Tammuz is only mentioned by name in this chapter, I want to draw our attention to this mother-son cult theme that I see represented in a lot of places in scripture, including even in Revelation, and also where you can see it in churches even today. And if that sounds a little bit far-fetched, just buckle your seatbelt, okay? So we're going to get into all that here for the rest of the show today. But I want to start with um, actually something that's going to seem off base, but I'll connect all this. I want to start with a familiar section of verses in 1 Corinthians 12. And you might recognize that as the spiritual gifts chapter. And the spiritual gifts, they include things like uh, miracles, healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of knowledge, all that stuff right there. So you'll often hear one of these gifts referenced in there as the gift of discernment. You know, sometimes you hear somebody say, oh, I have the gift of discernment. And I think that's a bit of a mischaracterization of what that chapter is saying. Um, I'm a Pentecostal pastor. I mean, I do believe in the spiritual gifts. So I'm not against this idea of spiritual gifts. I'm not against them showing up in modern times. But a gift of discernment is not listed here. The word discernment does not appear in this chapter. And I check translation after translation, the word discernment as a spiritual gift, it does not appear. It's not called the gift of discernment. Now, I'm going to read for you what it says, because you're probably confused and thinking you've read about discernment here many times. And maybe you'll think I'm being pedantic here when I explain this. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is be precise about what the Word of God says, because I don't want us to misunderstand what Paul is communicating when he talks about this gift. So the King James Version says this. I'm going to read the whole list for us today. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy. And here's the one we're looking at today. To another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So the line in verse 10, that is the gift that we often hear referenced as discernment. And again, you probably think I'm being a little pedantic here because I'm pointing out it doesn't say discernment. It says discerning. And that's an important distinction here. Um, first of all, one note on this gift that kind of cracks me up. <laughs> everybody, everybody thinks they have the gift of discernment. Like virtually every Christian thinks that they have discernment, that they have this discernment that, that other Christians don't, especially those who studied the spiritual gifts. They all think that this is one of the ones that they have. But here's the thing about discernment. All Christians are supposed to have the ability to discern things. Discernment is not meant to be something that only a select few Christians are able to do. All Christians need to practice discernment. And all of us have discernment in different areas. Okay, for example, someone who works at a bank, they are trained to discern real dollar bills from counterfeit bills. Now, I've never worked at a bank, so it would probably be easy to fool me with fake money. But if you were a bank employee... They have a greater discernment ability when it comes to analyzing money 
you know, gr- greater than the average person, greater than I would. So um, another example I could think of, older people. A lot of times I've, I've, they fall for fake ads on the internet a lot more easily than younger people. And I don't mean that to be an insult, but for younger people, they kind of grew up in the age of the internet. And so they're a little bit more adept at detecting whenever something on the side of a web page is like a legitimate advertisement or a banner or whatever. And when it's just a spam thing or a pop-up. So a 13-year-old might be able to hop on a web page and help his grandpa navigate a web page without, <laughs> without getting sucked into baloney and fake stuff as much. You know. Now, on the other hand, grandpa is going to be able to look at a used car ad and probably be able to tell the good deals from the bad deals a lot quicker than a 13-year-old could figure it out. And none of that has to do with what 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about. I'm just kind of pointing out the principle here. We all have discernment in various different areas, and that's why we should help each other out and share our wisdom with each other, and and that's good to do. But that's basically how discernment works. It's being able to distinguish one thing from another, and everybody should practice that in their own life. And, And we should all have some level of spiritual discernment. It's a spiritual sensitivity to know when something is just not right, okay? So let's get back to 1 Corinthians 12, because as I pointed out, it doesn't say discernment in that chapter. And I checked every translation I could on verse 10. None of them say discernment. They say something kind of like what the King James did. They say discerning of spirits. New King James is basically the same thing. NIV says to another distinguishing between spirits. NASB says, to another, the distinguishing of spirits. The ESV, which I primarily use for these studies, it says, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. So the idea of this gift that we call discernment a lot of the times, is specifically what it is doing, this spiritual gift, is discerning between spirits, distinguishing between spirits. It doesn't necessarily mean that you hear someone talking and just automatically know that they're lying, okay? There's a lot of people who can be good at telling when someone is lying. It's not talking here about holding a dollar bill and just knowing it's a counterfeit. That's a skill someone can be trained in. And if somebody can be trained in it, it's a human ability. It's not a gift of the Spirit. So this is not spotting false doctrines because we should all be working to better discern false doctrines. What this gift is talking about is being able to spot the spirit behind something and to recognize it. You see, there's a spiritual realm going on all around us all the time that we can't see. There's angels and demons, and they're in conflict with each other. There's good spiritual beings and bad ones. And and we often use the terms angels and demons. If we want to be technical, there's actually a lot of other categories of spiritual beings that are engaged in warfare around us all the time. We tend to just call the good ones angels and the bad ones demons. And that's good enough for us today. Okay, we're not going to get into all that today. But just FYI, not all demons are exactly the same. They're not all carbon copies of each other. There's some who are more focused on specific sins than other ones are. There might be demons of uh, some kind of sexual dysfunction and they attach themselves to some people. I'm not saying that they possess them. Just that they like attach to someone, they oppress someone, they torment someone. Uh, we see a lying spirit mentioned in the Bible. That's a spirit specifically geared to induce lying, and, and that might influence a person. So the spirits, they have different roles. They're not all exactly the same. So when we talk about discerning or distinguishing between spirits, 
What we're talking about here is recognizing when there's a particular spirit at work, okay? And by the way, I'm not claiming I have this particular gift, but here's what I do think. I think it works like all the other gifts do, okay? And here's what I want, here's what I mean about that. Even if it's not your specific gift, you can still attempt in it and 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 try to work in it. You know, maybe your gift isn't healing, okay? But you can still pray for someone to be healed. Maybe your gift isn't miracles, but you can still pray for a miracle. So don't get hung up on the idea that that the gifts are only for certain people. I think they're all worth pursuing, whether you have a particular spiritual aptitude for it or not, okay? And these three words also teach us something really valuable about the spiritual realm, distinguishing of spirits. That means, like I said before, not all spirits are the same. They have differences. It's possible to, to distinguish one type of spirit from another. So um, I've kind of taken you on a long detour the past few minutes to get back around to this thing of Tammuz, okay? Because I believe that the spirit of Semiramis and Tammuz is still infiltrating God's houses today. And I, will, and I think it will continue to do that even into the period of Revelation. So we're going to discern and expose that spirit today. And one of the ways that you can spot a spirit's influence is look at how they operate over a long span of time. Because spirits don't have lifespans. Spirits can last forever. Just like our spirits, um, we have an origin, but now we are going to be around for forever. So spiritual beings, they've been around for thousands of years. You know, you can kind of see this where um, spirits who are set over certain locations, uh, you can kind of see it where that's concerned. Like Daniel 10 teaches us that there's certain spirits who are over their own locations. They're called princes. There's a prince of Greece, a prince of Iran, a prince of Rome, and, and on and on it goes. The, the princes are territorial spirits, and they are in charge of the territory of a country. And so they go to fighting against the spiritual beings of other countries. So you see some countries, and maybe they've been in conflict after conflict with each other for thousands of years, and they just can't stop fighting. It's like all the humans die out in generation after generation, but that hatred, that vitriol toward each other, that never dies out. Now, why is that? Well, it's because they're influenced by the same spirits. So these, these spirits keep fighting back and forth. The people die, but the spirits keep fighting. So, um, you know, I can't tell you necessarily their names or something like that, but we can observe them in operation and, and how they continue to operate the same way year after year. Okay, and then there's the religious spirits. Now, those are not tied to one specific territory, but this, a religious spirit is where there's like, I, would, I guess I would could say demons of a particular false religion or, or a cult, and you start to recognize them because they manifest in the same way, but in lots of different places. So that brings us to Tammuz and Semiramis. Like I told you, Tammuz has a lot of names depending on where his story crops up in, in different locations. He was known as Adonis or Dumuzi. Lots of ancient religions worship the sun. Lots of Middle Eastern people worship the sun god and a moon god. There's an evil spirit that wants to be worshipped as the moon god. You know, um, Khonshu to the Egyptians, Yerik to the Canaanites. Uh, Jericho in the Old Testament, that was the house of the moon god. That's where the Muslims came from. Allah is the moon god, if you look back in history. And that's why the Muslim symbol, even today, is a crescent moon. So Islam might have, like, officially started whatever it was, 1,500 years ago. But the spirit of Islam, it was around long before that. They were the ancient moon worshipers. And and like I said about Semiramis, 
Um, she is Ishtar in different places in history. She was Aphrodite. She was Isis, and she was many more. Almost anywhere you look in history, you find the mother-son cult. And when I say that, it's the mother-son, the mother-son cult. It's all over history, and that's because it was the same spirit operating across various locations in all different times. Now, there's other spiritual cults and beings that we could talk about, but I just think this one with Tammuz and Semiramis, it's especially significant because I think this is Satan's parody of Jesus. I think this is Satan's main counterfeit to the story of Jesus because Semiramis was impregnated by Nimrod, okay, according to the legend, of course, and she was supernaturally given a son who was worshipped as a god. And so it has a lot of similarities to the life of Jesus. And and now you say, well, wait, Semiramis and Tammuz, they came first. They were like long before Jesus. Yes, that's because Satan knew a lot of aspects of God's plan. So he was setting up his own parody long before the true coming of God happened. There's prophecies all the way back in Genesis about a future miracle child who would come as the Messiah. Genesis 3 said that the, the Messiah will crush the serpent's head. According to the ancient legends, Nimrod crushed the serpent's head. And whenever he died from a wild animal, he was dying for mankind. And he came back and reincarnated himself as Tammuz. And so Tammuz was essentially equal to his father. So if we take that as Satan's scheme, we see that there's a lot of details that correspond to God's plans and God's prophecies back in the Old Testament, um, at least as much as he had revealed. But we see that not everything lines up perfectly. And that's because God hadn't revealed everything yet. So Satan could only, he could only anticipate certain things. And that's why he doesn't get all the details right. Um, so that's why it's, it's kind of similar to what God ended up doing with Jesus later on. A lot of similarities, also some differences. But I don't believe for a second that this whole thing about Nimrod and, and Tammuz and Semiramis, I don't think it for a second that it was dreamed up by some desert nomads in a cave. I believe this story came from the devil himself, or at least from some malevolent spirits that they came up with in order to deceive people. So um, back to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel's day, as we read in chapter 8, the worship of this mother-son cult it had infiltrated even the temple itself. And this was the last straw for God. And now that they had brought this evil demonic stuff in, God was about to do a big reset on Israel. He was wiping them out. And, and we're going to see in a couple chapters that he's even evacuating the temple himself. And so this was the last straw for God. It was so offensive to him. And I believe that you can actually see the same spirit manifesting in churches today. Just take a moment and Google Tammuz and Semiramis. And just go over to the Images tab. And you can look at the title of today's episode if you want to make sure you're spelling it right. This is one of those times where um, it would help a lot if I was doing a video podcast instead of just an audio one. Because there's several pictures and clips I want to share today. Um, but I can't just show you a picture on an audio podcast. So um, what you want to do is, is just, if you want to, just go over to Google. Type this in if you want to see it for yourself. Um Tammuz and Semiramis. And what, here's what you're going to see. You're going to notice a lot a, a lot of pictures of them, but they're incredibly similar to paintings of Mary and Jesus. Whenever you look at pictures of Tammuz and Semiramis, they look incredibly similar to paintings of Mary and Jesus, specifically the Mary and Jesus paintings that you see in a lot of European or Catholic art 
And I don't just mean it's the similarity of like a mother and a child. I mean, you often see that their bodies are positioned in the exact same way. If you Google the words Catholic, Mary, and Jesus, you'll see artwork that's exactly like the Tammuz and Semiramis statues that people used to worship. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to draw artwork of Mary and a baby Jesus. I mean, obviously, that was a real historical event, and artwork is not necessarily wrong in and of itself. But I, it's it's very strange you notice that a lot of the artwork, especially in Catholic tradition, it's drawn exactly like Tammuz and Semiramis. And, and here's some distinguishing characteristics when I say drawn the same. If you see Mary and the baby Jesus wearing crowns, or if you see Mary like holding a scepter, or sometimes Jesus will be, that's that's a Semiramis and Tammuz thing. Baby Jesus never wore a crown. Neither did Mary. That's not historically accurate, nor is it biblically accurate. It's literally an occultic image. Um, here's another indicator. If you see the baby Jesus holding up two fingers, it's, it's kind of creepy, but it's in a lot of this art, holding up two fingers. It's a common thing in Catholic and Orthodox art, even with their pictures of a baby Jesus doing it or a toddler Jesus. Um, and if you ask a Catholic, they'll tell you that this is just the sign of the blessing. That's all it means. It's a blessing sign. But go Google a picture of Baphomet. That, that's, that's spelled B-A-P-H-O-M-E-T. Okay? That's a pagan god. And it's a pagan god that you actually see mentioned a lot even today. The modern Satanists have kind of adopted Baphomet as their mascot. Everywhere you see a Baphomet statue or a picture... He's holding up two fingers, exactly like baby Jesus does in Catholic art. Now, <laughs> I, I know I'm going to come across as ripping on the Catholics today, because um, I also did that a few episodes back when I talked about idolatry. But I just kind of see this stuff continuously coming up in the book of Ezekiel in this part that we're in right now. Uh, because the same spirits that were infiltrating the temple in Ezekiel's day, they're the same ones that have infiltrated many churches today. And we can discern them. One way of looking at uh, how to discern them, one way of doing that is, is looking at the art that they produce. And the similarity is really creepy. The, the, like the Bible never says, hold up two fingers as a sign of blessing. But pagan religion does. That's a, that's a pagan practice. And so I, I hate to say it because I don't have like some personal animus toward Catholic people. Um, I would like to, honestly, when it comes to Catholicism, I would love to just shrug off our shrug off our differences, say that they're just like another de- denomination of Christianity, uh, and and I would love to just be able to say that. But some of the stuff that they do, it's too unbiblical for me to even tolerate. Uh, do you remember the nickname that the ancients gave Semiramis that also came up in the book of Jeremiah? They called her the Queen of Heaven. Do you remember that from earlier? From the Vatican's own website, where it talks about Mary, it says this. Now, in the accomplishing of this work of redemption, the Blessed Virgin Mary was most closely associated with Christ. And so it is fitting to sing in the sacred liturgy, near to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, there stood sorrowful, the Blessed Mary, the Queen of Heaven and Queen of the World. Pope Pius IX, he said, with a heart that is truly a mother's does she approach the problem of our salvation and is solicitous for the whole human race made queen of heaven and earth by the Lord, exalted above all choirs of angels and saints, and standing at the right hand of her only son, Jesus Christ our Lord, she intercedes powerfully for us with a mother's prayers, obtains what she seeks, and cannot be refused. <laughs> so, and and I, I only laugh there because all that stuff right there that's not found in the Bible, it's just a, a fiction of that, that Pope's imagination, or, or perhaps, honestly, as, as we're talking about today, 
a spiritually induced deception. Um, do you remember a few episodes ago from from Hebrews? We were talking about how there's one mediator between God and man, which is Christ Jesus. We don't need Mary to go intercede for us. We can pray to God directly. We can pray to Jesus directly. But the Catholics just have a lot of false beliefs about Mary. They say that she, they say things like that she never sinned, that just like Jesus, that she was morally perfect in her time on earth, and that she remained a virgin her entire life, despite the fact that Joseph and Mary, they had other kids after Jesus, uh, after he was born. They're mentioned in the Bible. But they say that, that no, she was too perfect and like wholly untainted, that she stayed a virgin her entire life. It's just literally wrong. Um, they have a, a whole long list of false beliefs about Mary that have no relationship to the Bible itself. It's just the words of popes and Catholic traditions. That's all it's based on. So let's review what the Bible does not say about Mary. It does not say that she was morally perfect. It does not say she was a perpetual virgin. It does not say choirs of angels sing to her or that she's above them. It does not say she's to be prayed to or worshipped. It never calls her a queen or the queen of heaven. It never tells us that she intercedes between us and Jesus. And it never tells us to pray to anybody but God. So what does the Bible actually say? about a queen of heaven. Well, she's mentioned as a false deity in Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 44. That's the only place in the Bible that you're going to see the words queen of heaven. And it's referring to a false god. So if you're praying to the queen of heaven, the only biblical basis for that is a blasphemy against God. And that's what all these Mary statues and the Mary worship in churches is. It's blasphemy. Um, I can only think of one place in the Bible where worship of Mary is brought up, okay? <laughs> Just one place where Mary worship is distinctly addressed in the New Testament. Now, that is when Jesus is addressing a crowd in Luke 11, and he's talking about how to pray and talking about driving out demons. And then this random woman just cries out in the crowd. Just a random person yells out in Luke 11, 27. It says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this woman starts talking about how blessed it must have been to be the mother of Jesus. And, and Jesus immediately says, anybody who follows God is blessed. So does it sound from his answer like Jesus puts Mary on this higher pedestal than any other Christian? And, and listen, I think Mary's great. Um, I feel like I always have to say this when I address the Catholic views of Mary. I have nothing against Mary. I'm just saying she's not to be worshipped or prayed to. She was just a regular, sinful human, uh, just like you and me. I'm not—well, she was special that God chose her to, to bring the Messiah through. And, and I, mean, I think she was a, a great person. Um, I love her response to the angel when the angel comes to visit her. I think she gives a very humble—shows uh, a servant's heart toward God, submits to, to God's plan— it submits to something that was going to be very difficult for her to endure, being the mother of Jesus. So, I th I mean, I think she's a great, awesome person, but she's still just a human being, okay? She's not someone to be worshipped. Even the good angels, okay, even the sinless angels that you read about in the Bible, they don't accept worship in the Bible. So we shouldn't be praying to saints or praying to Mary or having statues of her or bowing to them or kissing their feet. We shouldn't be doing any of that kind of stuff because there's only one place in the Bible where worship of Mary is brought up right there in the New Testament to Jesus himself. And if you noticed, he just immediately shuts it down. <laughs> so I, I, and I've hammered on the Catholic churches here, 
But I actually want to mention something else where I see this creeping into the Protestant churches too. Um, this uh, this attempt to to feminize God. Um, let's talk about that for a minute because God reveals himself in the Bible, throughout the whole Bible, as God the Father. Now, I acknowledge that both man and woman, that they are both made in the image of God. And, and I would say God has attributes that could be described as masculine and as feminine. Those are beautiful things about God, and I'm not reluctant to admit those whatsoever. But we got to remember that God reveals himself as Father. And, um, and I can't believe I'm even saying this, but he also provides us with his preferred pronouns, okay? And I'm, <laughs> I'm not the type of person to ever ask for or respect the idea of preferred pronouns because I think we should use someone's biological pronouns. Uh, that's, I guess that's a whole discussion for another day. But God, he doesn't have a biology. So with God, I have to go with what he tells me. And he tells me that he is a he. He made himself born into this world with a male body. And Jesus refers to God in heaven as our heavenly father. So God's preferred pronouns in scripture are he and him. Which makes it kind of ironic to me that there's a lot of so-called Christians today who are so comfortable and they're just gung-ho about this concept of preferred pronouns. And yet they're also the same ones who will be the first to try to refer to God as uh, God the mother instead of God the father. (laughs) They'll try to worship the so-called divine feminine. And, and this is not the God that I worship. It's not the God as revealed in scripture. It's just pagan nonsense. And, and here's why distinguishing of spirits is something that all Christians need to practice, okay? Because when you see Christians trying to call God female terms or worshiping Mary, you can then identify what spirit is controlling that church. And it's not the Holy Spirit. Um, you, you probably know the song, Good, Good Father by Chris Tomlin. Well, this past Mother's Day, there was this woke church, I guess I'll call it, down in Texas. It's technically a Methodist church. It's reportedly a mega church. Um, but I want to call them a woke church. So here's their rendition that they sang on Mother's Day of Good, Good Father. Still into love, love, love your good, good mother. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And, and that's not all I want to share today, but thanks to the Twitter feed called Woke Preacher Clips, um, they're a great watchdog of some of the insanity going on in churches around America. And, and right there, you heard the worship team celebrating blasphemy. They're, they call themselves a church and then seeing this pagan worship right there from the platform, which makes me so glad. I don't live in like Ezekiel's day where we just have one temple that we all go to. I'm glad I live in New Testament times. Because um, then everyone can have their own church and they can pollute their own churches. Their wickedness is their own. They can store up their own wrath for themselves. Uh, it, it doesn't have to necessarily... I, I hate to see it, but I'm glad that we have other options besides these these detestable churches that are out there doing this kind of stuff right from the platform. That's not all. Here's another clip um, from Mother's Day. This is from, again, from Woke Preacher Clips uh, and... This is at a church called Willow Creek Church. Now, this is a popular megachurch. I think they're over in, uh, just over in Illinois, and they broadcast their messages to thousands upon thousands of people each week. Here's what they said a few weeks back in one of their services. One aspect or dimension of God that most of us grew up with, I think, was a picture of God as male. Sue Monk Kidd writes this, The images that have pervaded our speech, 
thought, and feeling about the divine have told us that the divine is exclusively male. Indeed, the image, language, and metaphor of God as male has been used exclusively for so long, about 5,000 years, that most people seem to believe God really is male. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. So when they say that God has been seen as male for about 5,000 years, I just want to point something out here. That, that's about how old the Bible is, okay? <laughs> so, so yes, we've referred to God as male for about as long as the Bible's been around. <laughs> the Bible, the book that reveals God to us, yes, as long as God has revealed himself to mankind as a him, we have referred to him as a him, okay? So glad we cleared that up. And we'll continue. And and by the way, the person they're quoting here is someone named Sue Monk Kidd. Okay, she is a writer of what is described, what she describes herself as feminist theology. But she doesn't even describe her books as Christian books. She describes them as contemplative spiritual works. So just so you know who they're using as a source, okay, at this church, not using the 5,000-year-old Bible, they're citing a feminist theologian of contemplative spiritual works. So let's continue. So here are some questions Samantha and I want to pose to you today. And by the way, I know you call her Sam, but her given name was Samantha. (laughs) What if God is not a man? What if God transcends gender? Is there anything to the idea that God is not only father, but also mother? How would our picture of God and our relationship to God be different and more whole if we could embrace this idea of God as mother as well as father? I'm going to be honest. I'm a little daunted by this topic. Well, it was your idea. It was my idea, but I'm daunted because I just want to name it. It feels like there's some landmines here. To talk about the feminine nature of God means claiming certain characteristics as feminine. And then aren't we just setting up another binary American Christianity is new to this conversation about the divine feminine, and therefore, so are me and my mom. It's just important to name, we come to this as cisgendered women who have been formed by the image of God as Father. So today, we hope to simply open up some new possibilities that are beginning to set us free. So just some casual blasphemy right there, you know, mocking the gender binary, which is something God set up back in Genesis chapter 1. And later they start reading Bible verses where they switch out God's pronouns with feminine ones. Uh, We'll play a little bit of that. We get to read our scripture with a more expansive method of interpretation and discover how a modern, non-dualistic approach might open up this passage to us in new ways. Because even when David wrote to God as father, God was already mother. God was already both. God was already neither. Even if David couldn't see it yet. So let's stand, uh, we don't have to stand actually, but let's go ahead and read this passage aloud together. And we're going to try reading it with female pronouns. So this might stretch you a bit, but let's see how beautiful this picture can be. Okay, Psalm 23, here we go. The Lord Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. She makes me lie down in green pastures. She leads me beside still waters. She restores my soul. You know, as I hear that, um, doesn't the Bible say something about anyone who adds to it or takes away from it? (laughs) Something about going to hell forever and ever? And here they are doing it right on the platform of a church, of of a mega church. So I'm not trying to hate on specifically Catholic churches today. I'm against overall this pagan feminization of God, wherever it shows up, whether that's a Catholic church, an Orthodox church, 
a Protestant church, if it's ancient Israel, whatever. Because it may crop up in many places by many different names, but you can guarantee it's the same spirit behind it all. And we call it out. one more thing before we go today. I don't think this mother-son cult pagan spirit is done. I think it's completely corrupted the Catholic Church, and, and I think it also plays a role in end times events. So let's talk about what the Bible says about the seven years of tribulation, and where I believe we actually see the same spirit at work in the end times. A few episodes back, when I was covering the first horseman uh, from Revelation 6, I alluded to the fact that we are not 100% sure about whether the coming Antichrist, whether he'll be European or Muslim. And I, it would seem that he's gonna probably be one or the other based on a prophecy in Daniel 9. I think the prophecy is vague enough that it, it could go either way. But I've always been more convinced by the arguments that he's a European Antichrist and that he'll be closely associated with the Catholic Church. Now, I don't know this for a fact, okay? I'm not, I'm not claiming this with absolute certainty, but I think the Bible strongly indicates in Revelation 17, that the Catholic Church plays a major role in the tribulation with the Antichrist and his false one-world religion. Okay, so you can turn to Revelation 17 if you want to see this for yourself as we go through a few verses. And, and I'll be very sparing with what I look at because I'm, I'm trying to keep these episodes to within an hour. Um, I'm pretty borderline. I'm, I, I think I'm probably about past an hour now. So um, it, we're still going to go on a little bit more. But if you find this kind of stuff interesting, if you want more info on it, uh, just comment, email, let me know. I could do a whole episode on Revelation 17 and the connections I see here with the Catholic Church. And, and maybe I could go into a bit more detail about how I see them playing a role in, in the, tri the tribulation, specifically in the first half of the tribulation. So we could get into that sometime. Our email's in the show notes. And I'd love to know if you want to hear more on this sort of thing. Uh, or if you don't, okay? <laughs> the feedback's helpful either way. Um, but as you know, the Antichrist has a false prophet. Okay, you probably know that. There's this guy who comes alongside the Antichrist and directs the people of the world to worship the Antichrist as a as a god. And I have a feeling that just, you know, any Catholic pope, that they are pretty well set up already to be the false prophet. They have that spiritual influence going into it. So... Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So Revelation is very symbolic, and the prostitute here, th this is the false religion of the Antichrist. And I believe the prostitute is also Simiramis, or the spirit behind that whole Simiramis mother god cult deity thing. Um, that she's this mother god deity that many people throughout the world follow after. That's why it says, whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. It means there's been many world leaders who have bought into this religion. Okay? And just think for a minute of how many world leaders have Catholic backgrounds. I mean, even the current president of the United States, President Joe Biden, he's a Catholic. He prays to Mary. He carries rosary beads around. And, and, and they belong to his son, Bo, uh, who passed away a few years back. And the president carries them around now. These are things they use to, to pray to Mary. There's a news story from about a year ago um, how he brandished 
the the beads on his sleeve whenever he went to meet with the Catholic president of Mexico. And, and you know, it's as if to say, hey, look at me. I'm Catholic too. I pray to Mary too. You know, is a thing that they could have in common. So it, it would hard for me, it'd be hard for me to um, imagine any religion that more perfectly fits the bill of the false religion that many leaders of the world adhere to that would be represented by this great prostitute in Revelation 17. I just can't think of anything out there that fits it more perfectly. Uh, Revelation 17, 3 says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So the beast with all these heads, that is the government of the Antichrist. And as I've already said, I kind of lean toward a European Antichrist. But just go Google a picture of a euro, okay? Look up the euro coin. Um, it, it, the one that's worth two euros from Greece. Like, they have a different one for each country. Look up the one for Greece. It's a woman riding a bull. I read a description of why they did that. It said, This coin depicts a scene from a mosaic in Sparta from the 3rd century AD showing Europa being abducted by Zeus, who has taken the form of a bull. Europa is a figure from Greek mythology after whom Europe is named. So Europe is named from this image of a of a goddess of a woman riding a beast. And I'm sure all that's coincidence, right, with, with what Revelation tells us. I kind of wish this was a video podcast again so I could show you myself. But honestly, just so I'm clear here today, it's not coincidence, okay? But it's also probably not consciously engineered. I think there's a spirit behind all this stuff. I don't think the people who even created that coin, that they even really knew what they were doing. I believe there's a spirit behind all that stuff controlling it. And that's what we're doing today is we're distinguishing the spirits. What often you see occult or pagan symbols on money, um, just like I mentioned that artwork, it's a great source of identifying the spirits behind things. Money is another one. Money is too. I'm not saying you're cursed if you hold that money. I'm just saying there's a spirit behind that country and, and behind its wealth. And that spirit tries to get its picture imprinted on their on their currency. Um, what do we have a statue of on Wall Street in New York? We have a statue of a bull. Now, it's kind of a strange symbol for our money center, you know, <laughs> that we have a bull sitting right out in front of Wall Street. Uh, but I seem to remember as you read the Bible... Israel had a problem with worshiping statues of cows. So it's kind of weird that we pick as that is our statue for Wall Street. A few years ago, there was a socialism movement. It was called Occupy Wall Street. Their logo was a ballerina on top of the Wall Street bull statue. A woman riding a beast, just like Revelation 17. So there's a spirit behind the wealth and the money of the world. It's on the euro and, and all these coincidences, every time you see this pop up again and again, these coincidences are not coincidences because we can look at this and recognize the spirit behind all of it. So there's so many connections between Europe and the Catholic Church and Revelation 17, and this it's about this religion of the Antichrist. And, you know, as long as you're Googling, go Google the European Union Parliament building. It's in Strasbourg, France. It was specifically designed as a replica of the Tower of Babel. Okay, you can, again, just go Google it. I'm sorry I have an audio podcast, but if, if you think I'm making all this up, just go look at it. It's fascinating that they specifically wanted the European Union, Union building there to look like the Tower of Babel. Just blows my mind. Look at verse 6 of Revelation 17. It says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
Now, lots of religions could be said to have killed a lot of Christians, to made a lot of martyrs, sure. But the Catholic Church, I'm just pointing out, it's certainly one of them. They've killed a lot of Christians in history. William Tyndale, it's well known they tried to kill Martin Luther. Look at verse 9. It says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. It says the woman sits on seven mountains. Other translations I've read, they'll say seven hills. Uh, do you know what the city is that's known as the city on seven hills? The answer is Rome. That, that is, it's not, not even ambiguous whatsoever. The city on seven hills is Rome. Where is the Vatican located? It's in Rome. The Vatican is the center of the Catholic Church. It's located in Rome. And Catholicism has a huge influence in, in all of Europe. It's the dominant religion over there by far. But it's centered in Rome, the city on seven hills. In the Antichrist religion in Revelation 17, it's sitting on seven hills. So I just feel like there's so many connections between Revelation 17 and, and the Catholic Church that I feel I feel really, really confident that the Antichrist is, is going to be of European descent. Um, I've read books on the Antichrist being Middle Eastern or Muslim, but uh, but none of them have fully convinced me. I still lean on the on the European Catholic thing because it just fits so much more perfectly to me. Um, so anyway, we'll we'll probably have to kind of shut down soon. I, I'm way past my regular length of time, and and by now you might be in an information overload. So just email and let me know if you want to hear more on this subject. But let's recap where we've been and let's kind of tie all this together today. There's a mother son cult. It's with Semiramis and Tammuz. And it started shortly after the flood, around the, around the time of the Tower of Babel. And that mother-son cult has popped up in places all around the world by many different names. The names vary. Some of the details vary. But the same basic story is there. And, and that's where you and I need to try to discern the spirit behind all this. Because I believe it's all the same spirit. It's this cult-like obsession with the Queen of Heaven and a sun god. And I believe it's merged with Christianity um, in the early centuries of the church that it produced this false version of Christianity that we know today as Catholicism. And that's why they have a lot of the same artwork that this cult used and why they have this exaltation of Mary that I think goes into blasphemy territory. And, and when I say all that, listen, guys, I'm not saying it's impossible for a Catholic to be saved. Like, I hope and pray that many are. Okay? I'm not the judge. That, that, I mean, whether someone is saved is up to God. Okay? But if I have any Catholics still listening at this point, I just, I would implore you, I'd just say this, get out of this thing because they practice so many unbiblical things. Okay, rosaries are not in the Bible. Praying to Mary is not in the Bible. The only Catholic distinctives that are in the Bible, they show up in false religions, like in Jeremiah 44 or Revelation 17 or Ezekiel 8. I can come up with a lot of nice things to say about Catholic people, okay? And I appreciate the commitment to morality that devout Catholics have. I mean, I appreciate that, you know, in this culture right now that finds morality so subjective. The Catholics are often right there to put their foot down right beside Protestant Christians, and they say no. Right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. Catholics are very good about that. And I'll stand side by side with them in the pro-life movement, and I appreciate their support. But... I can't stand side by side with them and, and take communion or pray a prayer with them. I mean, not if they're praying a prayer to a saint or, or even Mary herself. No, we pray to God. We pray to God alone. So I just ask you again, if you're a Catholic, if you're still listening, just re-examine some of these things. 
And to everyone who's listening, let's re-examine ourselves and our churches and make sure this spirit of Tammuz and Semiramis doesn't creep in to our churches. Discern the spirits. We only want one spirit in our churches, and that's the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, there have been plenty of straws. (laughs) 